Martin Luther calls this the article by which the church stands or falls. He says this is the head and cornerstone of the church, which alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and protects the church. And without it, the church of God cannot subsist for one hour. And Emilio, what doctrine are we talking about today? Justification by faith alone, of course. Yeah, that's it. So welcome to Christ and Kingdom. I'm Pastor Mike Tiemann here in, in Southern California, beautiful, sunny Southern California here, joined with my good friend, Pastor Emilio Ramos from City View Church and RedGraceMedia.com. And blessed to be here with you to discuss this cornerstone of a, of a doctrine. And we were both kind of laughing because I just finished up a systematic theology class. I got about 17 high school students that were going through. Um, and we just talked about justification. And you personally at your church, you just finished up Romans chapter five on justification, um, you know, and, and the, the heartbeat there. So it's like almost as if God wants us to, uh, to learn something here, Emilio. Um, yeah, I think so too. But I, I have one thing against you. You can't keep rubbing California weather in my face because if you do, I will remind you of California politics and gas prices and everything, taxes yeah, you, and everything else. You, so you got me there. You better be careful. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you got to be careful there. I mean, the other day. But I tell you, brother, I tell you, I do miss that weather, brother. I do miss that weather. Yeah, the other day I had to put on a sweater. It got to like 65, um, and it was cold. Um, it was cold. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Wow. So we are picking up. It's been a few episodes uh, since we've been in uh, Dr. Ferguson's books and Claire Ferguson's book, The Christian Life, uh, a doctrinal introduction. And so we're just picking up this book in chapter nine. And he's reached this um, pivotal doctrine of, of justification. And he does such a, a simple job, but a, a masterful job. Uh, walking through this this doctrine, and there's so many elements to this um, that are are so important to to understand. And so, you know, by way of introduction, he pulls some quotes like I just I just quoted there, and and um, he starts off, and he I, I love this. What a brilliant place to start! And he says this: probably more trouble is caused in the Christian life by an inadequate or mistaken view of the doctrine of just uh, of this doctrine of justification than any other. Um, and absolutely correct. And I just taught this, this class and I spent the first 20 minutes of the class with the, the high schoolers kind of in the Protestant reformation, painting the background against the, the Roman Catholic church and what Martin Luther were dealing with. And then the, the later reformers and, and that cultural, political, religious kind of background, what, what Catholicism held for with, uh, with the doctrine of justification, how they viewed it and how the reformers brought back, right? They didn't invent the doctrine of justification. They brought it from the air that was, that was currently taking place back to a biblical foundation. So Emilio, mm. is, is Dr. Ferguson right here? You know, he says this doctrine, probably more trouble is caused when we fail to understand, when we have an inadequate or mistaken view of this doctrine. What, what are mistaken views of the doctrine before we get into the actual positive view of this doctrine? Yeah, uh, I think I think Sinclair is right. I think that obviously this doctrine being so pivotal, not just for the Protestant Reformation, but really in all of theology. As um, as you mentioned, I'm working through the Book of Romans, 
uh, at church. Um, and uh, we just finished up Romans chapter five, which means I've kind of gone already now through the entire section focusing on the doctrine of justification directly. And now obviously moving on to other uh, sections of the book, but uh, it, it's, it's crucial, not just for, for reform theology, not just for Protestantism, but in biblical theology and in, in biblical doctrine. I don't think there is uh, any way to overstate the matter that the doctrine of justification is absolutely essential. We're not elevating the doctrine of justification, let's say, to an unhealthy level or an unhealthy degree, maybe let's say like that which is found in Lutheranism, which kind of situates everything within the doctrine of justification for the Reformed or those following John Calvin. We would place more emphasis on the doctrine of union with Christ, uh, showing that that justification sort of is an outflow, an outwork of that, and that in the sense, uh, union with Christ is more ultimate, and uh, all of the order salutis is sort of founded in that. But you know, so when we think about the doctrine of justification, there can be so many different deficiencies in those doctrines. And of course, you have a deficient view of the doctrine of justification coming out of anything like Roman Catholicism, anything like liberal gnomism, uh, anything like uh, the new perspective on Paul, anything like the federal vision theology folks, uh, anything like those that would confuse the nature of the doctrines of works and the doctrine of faith, the relationship between works and faith, anything that would confuse uh, the doctrine, let's say, of law and gospel, or even going a bit deeper than that, anything that would confuse the covenant of works. And then behind that, not to go, uh, but we kind of have to go in order right here, but uh, even behind that, Mike, when we're dealing with the notions of nature and grace, uh, we have to take it to that extent because the doctrine of justification is not spoken in the Bible in a vacuum. It has a theological, historical, redemptive historical, and eschatological context. In other words, the doctrine of justification, like every other doctrine, is ultimately to be put in the context of the Bible's biblical theology, of the natural developing storyline of the Bible and what justification is necessary for in terms of those who have broken the covenant of grace and find themselves condemned in Adam guilty before a holy God and need eschatological advancement that will only happen by grace through faith. And so justification, in, in, in a sense, is to be subordinate beneath the greater covenantal scheme of the Bible. And especially here, we're thinking of, for example, the covenant of grace and the principle introduced in the covenant of grace is simply that we are justified, uh, uh, of course, not on our own uh, merit or our own work or our own obedience or righteousness, but we are justified now on the basis of the work of a mediator, and that what is required of us now, unlike Adam in the garden, pre-fall, what is required of us now is not perfect, personal, entire, exact obedience to God's law, but what is required of us now is that we trust and believe and have faith in the mediator. So wow. uh, anytime those kind of components are out of whack in your theology, you will have to that degree an unbiblical understanding of justification. And so when we think about Roman Catholicism 
and its heretical doctrine of justification dealing with infused righteousness, for example, through the sacramental system of Rome, that ultimately, Mike, goes back to a failure and a deficiency in protology. In other words, uh, the teaching of the garden of, of the garden and, and, and nature and grace dealing with Adam. So that's going real deep, real fast. And I understand that for a lot of folks, but it's important for people to know where, how this doctrine is con- comprehended and how important it is for us to, to, to follow something like what Dr. Uh, Ferguson has laid out here in this wonderful chapter because he has given us a very simple and yet orthodox and yet rich and profound sort of layout of the doctrine of justification, not only in terms of its nature, its terms, its definition, but also its practical import. And so yeah. uh, anything like an Arminian approach to justification, Roman Catholic, modernist, new perspective, and I don't know, we can talk about that, federal visionist type of uh, you know theology, these are all failed proposals that have appeared on the scene of Christendom over time. And therefore, the doctrine of justification by faith alone, according to Reformed Orthodoxy, has to be in the modern day, I I, I don't know if I want to say now more than ever, but equally so, we have to defend it today, Hmm. uh, just like any other day. And so, we have to constantly come back to that article, as uh, Luther pointed out, right? That article that is so critical and so important for the church. Yeah, without it, we're not gonna we're not gonna stand one hour, you know. And if I could just launch off of what you said a few minutes ago, is the idea that you know it could be assumed that we have an over uh, zealous love for Pauline theology, right? And you know, well, Paul really invented the doctrine of justification and and those accusations. But it's interesting to me, Romans four, Galatians three and four. Where does Paul go to? When he is when he's developing the doctrine of justification, right? It, it's it's not a New Testament um, only idea, right? He goes back to Abraham, right? He goes back to to those covenants, and and as you said, there is a redemptive historical biblical definition from cover to cover of the doctrine of justification that wasn't invented by Luther or Calvin or or these reformers you know, in the 1500s and 1600s, this is thoroughly biblical. Um, and before we get into uh, what is justification, I was reading through Michael Horton's uh, book on justification, and he says at the very beginning of his definition, and I thought this was was profound and really important to the conversation, his first words is, God justifies the wicked. And when you understand that in the context of what the reformers were dealing with, you know, in a, in a Catholic framework, God justifies those who are righteous, right? Through your good works here on earth, your time spent in purgatory. Once you reach that state of righteousness, God can declare you legally righteous in an Armenian perspective, right? They, they, they fall short of this idea of, well, in order to be righteous, you have to maintain your righteousness, right? And no, God justifies the wicked. And there's scandal in that. Like, like you read that and you start to think of that in the, the goodness and integrity of God. God has some answering to do here. Um, and that's the doctrine of justification of what we're, we're doing uh, what we're dealing with and the idea that God justifies wicked people, not holy people. God's never justified a holy person, 
right? We're all wicked sinners deserving wrath, yet God in his sovereignty, in his election, in his goodness has justified sinful people. Now, what's the basis of justification? How does he do that? Why can he do that? Um, What gives him the right to do that? So, Dr. Ferguson starts off with this question of what is justification? And he says this in Scripture. I'm reading from page 75. Can I write down there at the bottom? In Scripture, the word for justified justification convey the idea of being righteous or being in right relationship. Jumping down, he says, to be righteous in Scripture means to be, to be rightly related to God and to his law. And then turning the page, he says, so in Scripture, to justify does not mean to make righteous in the sense of changing a person's character. It means to constitute righteousness and to do so by declaration. And what a great place that, that Sinclair Ferguson starts, that, that primarily, chiefly justification, and we're going to get into the legal aspects of this, but justification is a legal declaration by God over a person. Kind of a, can, you, can you expound upon that? Why is that so significant and so important? Right. Well, because we don't want to ever uh, believe in this idea that justification has to do with making us morally righteous, right? And so we have to see it along the lines of a legal or forensic uh, sort of dimension, where just like in a legal courtroom scenario, you have the judge pronouncing someone either innocent or guilty. Now, the metaphor has its limits, but you know, it is true that the judge does not actually make you morally good or morally guilty, okay? He is pronouncing a verdict, and he's declaring you uh, in, a, in a certain state, and now you went from the state of guilt to the state of righteous or the state of innocence. Obviously, in the doctrine of justification, is much more than that. You go from the state of guilt to the state of righteousness, and so... Um, you know, that's why we have to understand God's legal declaration to be this sort of forensic idea where we are, and I like the word that he uses, right, when he speaks of constituting us righteous, because again, it lends to this idea that our state has changed. And that is really important because we don't ever want to come to this idea, let's say, um, that uh, because we are elect, because we are predestined, that we are also therefore in eternity justified. Uh, we don't want to believe in some hyper-Calvinistic conception of eternal justification. Justification is something that transpires in time. It's something that transpires as a transaction, an exchange. And he goes on to talk about that, and there's an exchange that happens. And so, it very much, uh, if we don't use the forensic language of the Bible and we start using more of an ontological language like Rome, we may be thinking that upon justification, you are actually becoming morally righteous within. That is not what that means at all. And so that is relegated ultimately to a different doctrine, which is the doctrine of glorification, mm-hmm. 
that is when we are going to be, in a sense, ontologically uh, renewed and, 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 and perfected, okay? But justification doesn't change our moral quality, but it does change our moral status before God. Hmm, that's good. And there's a two-edged sword here, you know, on the idea of justification. There's a legal declaration of innocence, and there's an imputation of God's righteousness, right? He's going to get into that later on in the chapter. He's starting off on the one side of let's, let's talk about justification as a legal declaration. And, and what does that mean? The forensic aspect of it. Now it's based upon the reason he could do that is because of the righteousness of Christ, the perfect active and passive obedience of Christ is the foundation, right? That's the scandal. What, what, you know, Dr. Horton writes is God justifies the wicked. Um, he can do that because of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ. Not our own righteousness, but the righteousness of a, another, an extra nose, an alien righteousness uh, that has been given to us, gifted to us uh, by grace and, and, and grace alone. And so, so that's the, the, he says, what is justification? Um, and he talks about that declaration uh, legal declaration, God speaking that, if I could say that reality over you, that verdict over you. Um, and I love that imagery because what happens when God speaks, right? Whatever he wants, you know, he speaks and galaxies get hurled into existence. Um, it, it is such authoritative weight to the idea of justification um, that we sit here and just cry out, wow, amazing grace. I mean, that is amazing grace that I did not deserve this. I'm the wicked person that God spoke, declared over me based upon the work of another, that I am innocent and declared righteous by him and, and him alone. Hmm. And that's the, that's the real scandal and danger when we manipulate that in any way when we pervert that in any way, you know, that you need to do something to preserve and, and increase your righteousness. Uh, that's, that's a crazy I, idea. I was reading through the, the canons of Trent, um, you know, just for fun. Um, this, the, the, the counter reformation there. Um, and let me see here. Um, you know, it, it canon nine, if anyone says that the sinner is justified by faith alone, let him be anathema. I mean, right, right there, the Catholic, we're not on the same team. We are, we are preaching a different gospel. Uh, and it says here, I think it's, is it canon 12 here? Canon 24, if anyone says that the justice or righteousness received is not preserved, and also not increased before God through good works, but that those works are merely the fruit and sign of justification obtained, but not the cause of the increase, let him be anathema. Right? I mean, crazy. In other words, your, your good works preserve and increase in the Catholic framework, your you know, infused justification at the time of baptism and, and, all, and all that stuff in that, that tradition. And we are, that was what the reformers were coming against, 
was this is not what we see in the Bible. What we see in the Bible is a righteousness of God being revealed apart from the law, although testified by the law and prophets, a righteousness that is by faith in Christ, according to the, the finished work of Christ there. And that's, you know, Romans chapter three. Um, and so let's talk about the power of justification. Hmm. He says this in, in page 77, the practical importance of this cannot be exaggerated. I love how you started off in your opening you know, remarks that the, there's a practical side of this that is precious to Christians. The glory of the gospel is that God has declared Christians to be rightly related to him in spite of their sins. But our greatest temptation and mistake is to try to smuggle character into his work of grace. How easily we fall into the trap of, us, of assuming that we remain justified only so long as there are grounds in our character for that justification. But Paul's teaching is that nothing we do ever contributes to our justification, right? There is a temptation within the heart of man to, to just, in all of our hearts, to try to do something. Like, I have to do something. I have to contribute something. Yeah. And the gospel says, no. The gospel, it's not God came 99% of the way and we just need to make up that 1%, you know, or some variation of that. It's no God. God did it all, which is why we could sit back and sing amazing grace. Yeah. You know, what a precious reality. Yeah, and I think it's it's appropriate when you uh, when you cited the 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 canons of door or the um uh, the, the the canons of the Council of Trent because uh, the Roman system, right? Rome is capitalizing on exactly what you're talking about, uh, which is this, the, which is man's sin, sinful propensity to want to make a contribution to their own righteousness and to their own salvation ultimately. And so Rome capitalizes on that and tries to use the sacramental system of Rome to make people think that this is how you're going to make that contribution. And this is why, you know, in, in, uh, uh, in modern times, uh, people like N.T. Wright, James Dunn, E.P. Sanders, and many that follow in that ilk are very dangerous yeah. because they are transforming the whole notion of justification from strictly limiting it to the concept of of, of your acceptance before God and transforming it into a concept, into a doctrine, as they contend, that has more to do with you staying in, in the Christian faith than, in a sense, getting in the Christian faith. And that, once you do that, once you have replaced sanctification with justification, or you've confounded the two, or you have turn justification into a form of sanctification, then you're doing exactly what Sinclair Ferguson's talking about here. You're introducing the notion that on the basis of some character within you, only if and when you have this character, when you have this virtue, will you maintain your righteous status before God. And so you're back to this contribution again, and it just does not work. Hmm. 
And, uh, you know, we, we, we talk about the doctrine of justification, but really we have to understand that anytime we're talking about justification, we're also immediately, as you pointed out just a moment ago, you're also immediately talking about imputation. And you're talking about imputation, why? Because the word justification implies two, in a sense, two justice, uh, two concepts of justice in a sense. The justification of man, which is what we're usually talking about, but also what Paul talks about in terms of the justification of God, right? That God in Romans chapter 3, he remains just even as he justifies the ungodly. And the only way to do that is through imputation. And so only on the basis of the imputation of the righteousness of Christ do we stand forgiven. I mean, Scripture presents three imputations, right? We have the imputation of Adam's sin. We have the imputation of the sin of the elect upon Christ. And you have the imputation of Christ upon the elect. Uh, so, you know, sorry to fast forward it <laughs> that way, but that's yeah, those are the objects of redemption. You know, if you're not there yet, understand, but that's what Scripture teaches. And so this triple imputation, we can say, is really what justification is kind of why justification is what it is. That's why it's not about getting, it's not about staying in. This is why your, your character cannot make a contribution. The work's been done. Uh, imputation has settled the matter. Uh, the wrath of God has been appeased. The righteousness of God has been credited to all who believe. And so Rome is just grossly mistaken when it says that good works are not merely the byproduct, but they're actually the means by which you gain this justification. And of course, what that results in is what I call the treadmill of self-righteousness. You have to work, you have to run, you have to row, row, row your boat all the way to heaven in the hopes that you'll get there someday. And this is why, as you know, Mike, no Rome, no Roman Catholic is ever afforded assurance of salvation. I've never met a Roman Catholic that has certainty of salvation. And they, and they mock you and scorn you and they chastise you if you even dare believe that you have some kind of assurance. It's a Ponzi scheme. Yeah. Rome wants you to keep coming back to them, okay, for more and more of this infused righteousness. But if you ever come to the point where you are settled in your assurance of justification, then you don't need Rome's sacramental system anymore. So they know that you can't have it. Yeah. And so uh, assurance is really not obtainable for Roman Catholics, just like it is, just like it's not for the vast majority of uh, pagan religion. Yep. There is no assurance of salvation. Yeah. So Rome, that only comes through the work of justification. Yeah, Rome anathematizes you, right? That's yeah. the level of control. Rome anathematizes you. You know, that's the level of control that they have. And I love this. Bottom of page 77, this goes to what you were just saying a, a moment ago is justification is not a subject of degrees. Within the Christian faith, you don't have men and women who are more justified or less justified. Uh, Dr. Ferguson goes, goes on and says, God's work in us is, that could be a matter of degrees, we differ to the extent which we allow the Spirit to make us like Christ, and it is possible, therefore, to be more or less like Christ. But it is not possible to be more or less justified. Right, because justified is that once for all final divine fiat um, declaration of 
innocence and righteousness um, based upon just God's sheer, sheer mercy. So this idea that we can earn more justification by our obedience and we could lose justification by our disobedience and heaven forbid that we, we continue down a path of disobedience that we just completely lose all of our, our justification. That is a foreign concept to Paul and to the entire, the entire revelation of scripture. Um, you don't find it, you don't find it in there. And so this this idea of more or less justified people is is false. It creates this haves and haves nots and ins and outs and super saints and not super saints and and this I, I love that that imagery. What what did you say? The treadmill um you know Yeah, the treadmill of self righteousness. Yeah, just I mean, a, a yo yo really what people are on. Yeah. Of going back and forth and hopefully uh, today I do better than tomorrow, and if that is where our assurance is based, there's no hope. Right? I, I have no right. hope. You know, yeah. and my hope yeah. is I, I would yeah, exactly, and I would even go further than that. It leads to a different kind of assurance. If assurance is based on self righteousness, then you are assured that you are damned. Yeah. Wow. I mean, that's what Galatians three tells you. <laughs> yeah. Right. Galatians three says, "Look, if you know you're bound to the law, you know Paul's basically saying, well." Good luck with that, because that's not going to work. You know, you're, you, you're going to be duty-bound to perform the entire law, all that God commands, not just the parts that you think you, you've got under control, but you're now bound to bear an impossible burden of law-keeping. And therefore, um, we cannot ever, uh, in, in the slightest, and this is why, you know, maybe today, uh, for most Christians, and even in the Reformed faith, you have an understanding. Rome got the doctrine of justification wrong, and they perverted that doctrine. And But today, you have other iterations that are scary, the new perspective mm-hmm. on Paul, uh, and also the federal vision type theology that still persists. I still see evidence of that coming from people, let's say, from the Doug Wilson camp uh, that are still espousing uh, quasi uh, sort of, uh, you know, aberrant, you know, type of language when it comes to this doctrine. They still want to confuse the nature and the, and the function and the role of obedience in relationship to righteousness yeah. in the life of a believer. And We can't ever allow, and so the way that I've put it to people this way over the years, Mike, is I've warned people who want to go dabble around with people that are proponents of federal vision theology or people that are are, uh, uh, attracted to N.T. Wright because he's very brilliant and he writes voluminously and he has written detailed uh, exegesis and detailed exposition and detailed theology in Scripture but at the end of the day, it's this simple right here. It's just a warning to everyone that if, if in your doctrine of justification, faith becomes faithfulness, your gospel is over. And so the moment you have gone from you are justified on the basis of faith to now you're justified on the basis of your faithfulness, <laughs> Uh, your gospel's over right there and then. Yeah. 
And sometimes the way that they try to wiggle out of that, Mike, is in passages like in Galatians, where these faith statements are made. They try to say that it's not faith in Christ that is in view in Galatians, but what's in view is the faithfulness of Christ. Mm-hmm. And so when it comes, it, it, it's, it's another way of stripping the language of faith away from you in, 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 the, in the guise of placing it in a, in, a, in a higher order, in a higher sort of category where it becomes the faithfulness of Jesus. And of course, who wants to speak against the faithfulness of Jesus? Well, I want to speak against the faithfulness of Jesus when, when Scripture is not going to talk, when Scripture does not mean to teach that. And when through the guise of referring to the faithfulness of Jesus, you are suddenly opening up the door for justification not, no longer being a matter of faith alone, you have to be very, very careful how you deal with that. Yeah, that's good. Uh, before, before we move on, because <clears throat> we've talked about the, the what is justification and those, can you give us, what, what's your go-to text um, when you are going to define justification or, or support justification by faith alone? Um, you know, I've never heard of this, Emilio. A brand new Christian, tell me, tell me what I what I need to know. Um, you know, can, canons of Trent and those type of things sound okay, but what what does the Bible say? Oh boy, yeah, that's a tough one, brother, to try to distill it down to one passage. But I would have, I would definitely go to uh, Romans chapter three, uh, verses twenty one to the end of the chapter, because there you have the Apostle Paul situating the whole language of righteousness as being manifested apart from the law. And so you are immediately confronted with the idea that you have to, you know, that you have to, uh, you have to think of this righteousness no longer in terms of law keeping. And so how does it work therefore? Well, he explicitly tells you in in Romans 3, 22, that the righteousness of God is through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, not all who work, not all who do, not all who perform, not all who keep the law but for all who believe. And then he says, there is no distinction. This is a universal principle for everyone, Jew and Gentile alike. And then he's going to tell you, of course, your need of justification because everyone has fallen short of the glory of God. And therefore, justification is is a result of the grace of God. No one in the universe can own, can claim ownership over the righteousness of God. Everyone has fallen short. Therefore, everyone needs the grace of God. And this is what Paul calls the gift, right? So this is God's gift, and he repeats that notion later on again. But this whole redemption that he speaks of is ultimately on the basis of propitiation. And so that we deal not just with the act, or or, or, or rather, not just with the, 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 the idea of being declared righteous in the sight of God, but Romans 3 is so crucial because it gives you the basis of this justification— and it's not based on us, it's based on Christ who obeyed, right? But like you mentioned, both in his active and passive obedience, and in that sense, he removes the wrath of God from us, and he removes our sin from us in a simultaneous act, and therefore, we can now see how God and why God chose to work in this way. Why is it that, why is it that, uh, you know, that David was not punished for his adultery? Why is it that all of the sins of the Old Covenant, of the Old Testament, were not punished at that very moment. Well, why is it, how is it that God could pass over these things? 
Why would he show forbearance here? Because all of those things will be dealt with. God is not sweeping injustice under the rug. He's not sweeping the sins of his people under the rug. They have been dealt with decisively at the cross. And therefore, this is how God is going to be both the justifier and just. Uh, and so that something like that is going to be super, super important. But also, if someone needed a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of an, a simpler or, or, or something shorter, right? I, I would also take them to Philippians chapter 3. Um, I mean, I think Philippians chapter 3 is so important because it, it deals, Mike, with what you brought up in terms of people feeling like they need to make some kind of contribution to their, to their justification, to their righteousness. Well, obviously, in, in Philippians 3, the Apostle Paul sets all of that aside. He sweeps all that aside. And in verse nine, uh, verses uh, uh, seven to nine, obviously super important. But in verse nine, you know, he speaks about having a righteousness that's not of my own that comes from the law. And so right away, we recognize that this righteousness, this justification, has nothing to do with us, nothing to do with our works, but only that which comes through faith in Christ. And what righteousness is this? It is the righteousness from God that depends on faith. And so that becomes remarkably important. Um, uh, so you asked me for a go-to text. Those are just a couple, but we could be here all day, obviously, talking about uh, Galatians and, and everything else. Yeah, but uh, those are, I think, fully, I, I think overall, if I'm talking to somebody who is just trying to get, wrap their mind around this doctrine, I would probably take them to that Philippians passage because I think it's, it's so human uh, I think it's so it's some, it's something we can all relate to. We all have a background. We all have a pedigree. We all have credentials that we think we have. We all have a, a, a an upbringing and and things like that. Especially if you come from a a Christian or a religious upbringing, you you try to bank on that. You try to look to that as a basis for your righteousness. And Paul just sweeps all that aside. And he, and he magnifies uh, the righteousness of God that depends on faith alone. So, Amen. And then we come to the big question, right? It gets often posed this way. How could a good judge, I mean, the evidence is stacked against you. You have eyewitness testimony, self-testimony. You're declaring yourself guilty. You have video footage from every angle. You are absolutely guilty. And the judge then declares you to be innocent. That's a bad judge, right? Like in any context, that would be a bad judge. And so Sinclair Ferguson, the bottom of page 78, he's asked the question, how can God be just and the justifier of the ungodly? And you tapped on that uh, a few moments ago. Um, and Sinclair says, God does not justify us because of what we are or what we have done. Right, the whole point of Paul's argument in Romans chapter one through three, three twenty. Right, that's all that was leading before what you just said. It, just the sweeping declaration of man's sinfulness. Right, is to demonstrate, and I'm quoting Ferguson again, is to demonstrate the sheer impossibility of such an event. Rather than justification, it is divine wrath which man has merited. 
right? That, that's it. So then he goes down. So what, what is the basis? How can God be just? In the middle of page 79, he, he just nails it with such a simple, eloquent sentence. He says, the only basis for justification, which the New Testament recognizes, is the works of Christ. That's the only basis, right? And, and how scandalous is it when we say, well, the works of Christ and our works, right? You, you cheapen it, you lose the gospel, that's it. It is so profoundly simple, it, it's irritating, right? It's irritatingly simple. The only basis for justification which the New Testament permits is the work of Christ, so Emilio, why don't you kind of take it from there and, and let's let's dive in as he's gonna he's gonna dive into that idea of the active and passive obedience of Christ, the imputation of Christ's righteousness. Um so this this is your opportunity to shine, Emilio. Break break it down for <laughs> yeah. us. Well, I think Sinclair Ferguson's doing all the shining. I think we're <laughs> just kind of hiding in the shadow, Amen. right? Uh but no, Sinclair is right. He 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 points out several things here in terms of how, how is it that Romans chapter 3, you know, uh, what we talked about in terms of uh, the justice of God in verse 26, how can he be both just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ? Well, number one, Sinclair Ferguson wants us to see that this is based on obedience. And of course, not our obedience, but the obedience of Christ, that Christ lived a life of total, complete obedience. And here, of course, he's talking about uh, you know, in terms of his active obedience, um, you know, he wants to uh, bring in this idea of law keeping, but again, theologically, maybe a bit more comprehensively, because this is where the book of Romans goes, right? What comes after Romans chapter four dealing with Abraham? Well, it's Romans chapter five dealing with Adam. And so the doctrine of justification goes all the way back to this Adamic situation where you have two federal heads. You have the federal headship of Adam and the federal headship of Christ. And this, according to uh, Romans chapter 18, are, are, are represented by Paul as two distinct acts. And it's almost like there's one act and followed up by a second act. And one act, I mean, not like one scene in a movie, I mean like one deed, right? One trespass uh, led to condemnation for all people and for all, and therefore that is talking about the fall of Adam. And in the same way, he says, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So right there, you have the life of Christ, the, the perfect one life of Christ being described as one act of righteousness. It's an interesting way of saying it, but I think the reason he does that is to stress his representative nature, to stress his representative headship, the federalism that's involved in the life of Christ, who as a public person, as they say, as a public person in what he did, he represented his posterity. And the reason I bring that up is because as much as Sinclair is correct, to bring in the notion of the law and the active obedience of Christ, but we know that Jesus, in his life, death, burial, resurrection, he, he fulfilled not just the law of Moses, but he fulfilled the legal demands of the covenant of works. And so he rectified everything that Adam uh, ruined, 
uh, to put it in a different way. But he also talks about the fact that Christ, despite his personal innocence, he was treated as a guilty man. And so he was treated as guilty, of course, because he was vicarious. He stood in our place. He did this on behalf of us. And again, this helps us to understand even the vicarious atonement of Christ when we look at federalism and understand that for God, he only looks at the world in two ways. Either you are in Adam or you are in Christ. That's it. And, um, and, and this should help us in our theology to kind of comprehend the world, it, it, not just at the legal level, but at the deeper covenantal level as well. And even, obviously, covenantalism being a, a legal issue for sure. But the covenant was more than just a, a, a issue of legality. It's also an issue of worship. It's also a issue of religious life. And, uh, and therefore, what Christ did for us, man, he did it as our prophet, priest, and king. And, uh, and, and it just entails the whole work and the whole person of Christ. But of course, Christ, according to Romans chapter 8, was uh, treated as a sinner. He was regarded as sin. And God did not spare his own son, but he delivered him up for all of us. And so that goes back, of course, to the uh, suffering servant, the messianic servant of Isaiah 53, who, of course, is going to connect us to this idea that someone had to pay the price. So we're asking the question, how can God be just in justification? Well, number one, because his justice was satisfied through the active and passive obedience of Christ. But number two, because the sin that he forgave was placed upon his son Jesus, who absorbed the wrath of God for us. And that's the absolute importance of propitiation. And then the last thing that Sinclair uh, brings up here, he talks about the explanation of this remarkable mystery. And he says that the sinless one suffered as a guilty one, is to be found in the bond with which God has established between Christ and and his people. So in other words, it has to do with our union with him and his representation of us. And so those are some of the ways in which we have to understand justification uh, that is capable both of interpreting the wrath of God, the judgment of God, but also how it, it interprets or helps us to understand how God can be just in forgiving sinners at the same time. So, yeah, and theology, you know, where we we set aside or we're looking at justification, you know, specifically today. But all of this fits together. If we have a weak view of the atonement, uh, this all falls falls short, right? If we have a weak view of of our Christology, this all this all falls short. It all is one grand narrative. That Christ, you said it earlier, he died for his elect. Uh, he, he paid that penalty for them, all of it, right? And, and when, we, when we falter on those doctrines as well, the, the domino effect of error just spreads all the way through, right? You have to have 
a solid biblical understanding of the atonement, of the works of Christ, of the righteousness of Christ, of the imputation of that righteousness, a justification of legal declaration, of all of these things work together to paint a holistic picture of the gospel. Of course, we could put in sanctification, glorification, you know, there's the list goes on and on and on. But back to that first point that we we brought up early on in this this episode is there are so many errors. You know, when you tweak this just a degree, when you take it off and you make it just a little bit about man, yeah. you know, when you when you make it a little bit about our effort. And I think that's that's where Dr. Ferguson goes next. And this is, I think, where the the rub hits people the wrong way when he talks about justification by faith alone. Right. That's hmm. that's the the. Declaration of the Reformation, one of the solas, right? You're justified by grace alone, through faith alone, um, and and that faith. And he says this. Uh, I thought this was brilliant. In page 83, um, he says, under the faith only an instrument. Uh, this concentration upon faith should not lead us to think that we are saved because of faith. Right, because of faith. And then skipping down, the New Testament never says that justification is on the basis of, on the grounds of, or because of faith. Faith is never more than the instrument, the channel by which we receive grace and justification. And I think so many Christians get get this idea wrong. So why don't you kind of break down that idea of faith? What is the source of that faith? Is this something that comes up within us that we must, you know, work up from the depths of our depravity to achieve some certain level of faith, right? Or is this in Ephesians 2.8? You know, I'm probably giving it away here. Like uh, a faith that is gifted. Um, how do people go wrong in this idea and what's the correct idea of faith what is the faith that justifies well you know paul says in Thessalon- in thessalonians not all men have faith faith is a gift faith has to be given and granted by god that's what we're told philippians 129 ephesians 2 8 many other places where faith is a virtue that we don't possess of ourselves certainly not saving faith that's not to mean that we can't trust a parachute or we can't trust a chair to hold us up but faith is an instrument. Faith is a tool. Faith is, according to some, that invisible hand that lays hold of the gift of God, of the grace of God. And that hand, as it were, can only be implanted by the call, the effectual call of God in regeneration. And so this, this is where the order salutis really matters here. To understand a proper order of salvation is to understand a proper place for faith, for saving faith, to understand that prior to saving faith, we were born again of the Spirit of God. Now, so many folks are, make a mistake here in thinking that regeneration and justification are synonymous. They might be simultaneous in the sense that I don't think it's healthy, Mike, to insert some kind of chronological order between regeneration, let's say effectual calling, regeneration, and justification, and definitive sanctification, let's say, right? And then adoption, right? I don't think there is a chronological get your stopwatch out and start tracking which one of these phenomenons happens first, but there must be some sort of logical order 
okay, uh, where we must put one before the other. And, and the order salutis teaches us to do this, right, at the most basic level. Lection, justification, sanctification, glorification. You can't make those all simultaneous or you're in a mess, <laughs> right? And, and therefore, this logical and sequential order is absolutely necessary. Therefore, faith is the byproduct not of people coming to a good idea or people having a, a, a religious journey as a to-do list for the day, right? It's that part of God's saving work purchased by his son included the faith that we exercise in believing in the gospel in the first place. And so just as Christ merited our justification, he also merited our propitiation, our regeneration, our glorification. He earned it all. He bought it all. He redeemed us completely from beginning to end. And so faith is, I'm glad that Sinclair made this distinction because in a culture like ours, given to moralism, given to selfism, given to absolute self-centered narcissism, where we believe in total humanism today, where we believe that the power of salvation just lies within. Sinclair Ferguson is so right to point out that, you know, in our, in our culture today, Mike, faith is personified. Yeah. Faith is everything. Uh, matter of fact, all of the virtues of God are personified, right? Uh, just believe in faith. Yeah. <laughs> the power of faith. Faith can find a way, you know, um, and they divorce these virtues from the source, which, of course, is God. I just recently told our church, when we sing Amazing Grace, we understand that grace is not some sort of uh, autonomous force in the universe. It's not some sort of principle floating around in outer space. Grace, when we say Amazing Grace, we really are just singing Amazing God. Mm because it flows from the being of God himself. All of these virtues come to us from the God who is good, the God who is gracious, the God who is faithful, the God who is righteous. All these virtues are an outflow of his own moral purity and goodness. And so we cannot elevate faith to that extreme. And also, Sinclair Ferguson is right, and it goes he didn't go into detail here, but it goes to grammatical details, actually. And I know we're kind of uh, short on time here, but it goes to grammatical details, Mike, because there is a combination in the Greek text that can easily make faith, the Greek word faith, pistis, combined with a preposition, let's say dia, and combining those in a certain case-sensitive situation, you can easily make faith the basis of your salvation. But the Holy Spirit um, never ever ordained that that combination of grammar should be used in the New Testament, where grace is often associated, is often uh, accompanying, is often the means and the manner or the instrument, but never the basis, which is super uh, important to note that God never meant for us to read in his word that faith is the basis, the ground of our justification. That is always owing to grace and grace alone. We've got 
Five solas, right? Not just one. <laughs> We've got five, not just sola fide. We got to remember sola gratia, right? Sola gratia is uh, just as important as sola fide. So we've got to, we, we can't ever personify faith and we can never elevate faith to unhealthy proportions so that we mess up the order salutis. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's unique to the reformed faith that we have a completed salvation 100% brought by God, right? That's the, the monergistic idea of what, you know, we could call it reformed or just biblical. Um, both of those, I think, would be, be synonymous in that, that we can sing amazing grace because it's truly amazing. Well, let me say, let me say this, uh, Mike. On page 83, Sinclair Ferguson knocks it out of the part in three ways here. He says, number one, faith, on, faith is only an instrument. That's right. That's a perfect way of defining it. Yep. Number two, he points out the fact that in the New Testament, we never have that combination. Mm-hmm. Right where faith is made the ground, the basis of justification, the basis of our salvation. No. And he also exposes, and why we need to be careful as students of Scripture, that translations like the RSV have to be discarded. Right, Romans 3.30, what, what does the RSV say? He says it's misleading because it translates it, he will justify the circumcised on the ground of their faith. That is a wrong translation. That is a bad. Uh, that is a bad translation of that Greek phrase, and so uh, I, I think Sinclair Ferguson here. You know, this whole study, the Christian life, is meant to be a practical, doctrinal sort of overview of the key concepts of your Christian faith relating to salvation and sin and communion with God and those kinds of things. And there can be nothing more important than this doctrine right here, because if we end up adopting these false notions of justification, we will never understand the grace of God. We will never understand the work of Christ and what he has done for us. It it has massive implications for the most practical things, assurance, uh, peace with God. All of these things are uh, reconciliation, all of these things are compromised uh, on one slight slip, one false move on this doctrine can easily cascade in a number of devastating and harmful ways in, in, in relationship to your theology. And of course, as we know, the reason why we say theology matters is because it impacts all the other aspects of your life. So we have to really, really be on guard uh, and I think this chapter is a tremendous, tremendously useful uh, to keep Christians uh, in the Orthodox and Reformed understanding. And and I would just say this before I forget, Mike. Let me just say this: um, for Christians that want to go and 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 want to stay in a safe lane, I don't think you can get a better treatment of this doctrine than James Buchanan. And so you have to get this book by James Buchanan, the Doctrine of Justification. Which you know, it's it's kind of a, it's kind of a, a a Puritan at a time in a sense, right? James Buchanan, nineteenth century. So I mean, you're not dealing with Puritanism per se, but it's written kind of like a Puritan book. It's even published by Banner of Truth. <laughs> so 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 you know it's puritanical just by just because it's got Banner of Truth on it. 
<laughs> but no, seriously, the doctrine of justification by James Buchanan, there's a sense in which I would tell people there's no need to go anywhere else yeah. because he gives you the covenantal. He gives you the forensic. He deals with the Old Testament background. He deals with the vocabulary. He deals with practical implications. And just the propositions, I would tell folks, throughout this book, James Buchanan has the, what, what he calls propositions that he then seeks to defend throughout the book. And these propositions, I tell you what, these propositions, Mike, they're like standalone propositions. I mean, you can just take these propositions, put them on flashcards, and memorize them if you want yeah. to, because they're that foundational, and they're that healthy, and they're that good. So yeah, that's the last word I'm going to say on yeah, it. Yeah, and we, we skipped it, but early in the chapter, he quotes Buchanan. Um, yeah, he does. And so he certainly does. We just skipped it for for time's sake, but maybe that was maybe that was wrong. Now he he lands the plane. No, that's that's to get people to go read yeah, the go book. Go read the book. Um, and it, it, it's an accessible <laughs> book. It's thick in the sense of it, it takes you to the deep end of the pool, but it is it is readable. Um, Absolutely. And so Doctor Ferguson says, faith means dependence on another and not on oneself. Right, that's page eighty-four. Right, and I thought, what a what a beautiful and simple summary of this is what faith means. Right, when we when we come to faith in Christ, is I am believing and trusting in the goodness and mercies of my God, in the faithfulness of Christ, in my great High Priest who is ever living to make intercession. And that's it. Right? I, I, have, I have no other confidence, no other boast, which is his, his next point, right? And he, not his point, because he's referring to Paul, where is boasting then? It's excluded, right? Because it's, it's all of grace um, through faith, right? We, we have nothing. We're not going to get to heaven and be like, God, you know, fist bump. You did your part. I did my part. Good game. That was, that was awesome. You had your role. I had my role. No, it's going to be. God, I'm here because of you and, and you alone. Um, and I have nothing to boast in. The only thing I brought to the equation was the sin that required the sacrifice. And that's it. You know? Yeah. yeah. Mike, that is the perfect way to end, uh, to end this sec. The, uh, the episode is exactly on that. Yeah. Amen. So I guess with that, thank you for listening to Christ and kingdom. It has been a privilege uh, discussing this this doctrine with you, Emilio. Um, yeah. And so to all of our listeners, thank you. Please don't forget to like and share. This is, this is the doctrine that we can't, the church doesn't survive one moment without a right understanding. So if any episode that you need to play back and listen to and read the chapter and go buy James Buchanan's book, this is the time to do that. Drop the, drop the cash and get it done. Um, and thank you so much. Don't forget to check out Red Grace Media Live on Sunday nights uh, as it broadcasts at 7 and redgracemedia.com. So with that, Emilio, God bless you. God bless to all of our, bless you. Yep. Great time. All of our listeners. And I will see you next time.